The Northern Alliance is preparing for a major offensive against Afghanistan's ruling Taliban while U.S. forces bombard the regime's power bases. This according to a top strategist for the anti-Taliban militia. The comments come after the U.S. and Britain launched the first attacks on Afghanistan last night. The first planes roared over Kabul soon after a nightly curfew took effect, dropping bombs, firing missiles at targets at the city and near the airport. The curfew means residents cannot run to safety, and thousands of them began fleeing the capital as dawn broke and the nightly curfew lifted. The presidential palace in Kabul was reportedly hit. Minutes after the strikes there, the Taliban's stronghold of Kandahar came under attack, provoking a mass exodus from the city. The eastern city of July Lalabad was next, and there were reports that smaller towns in the north, as well as the major city of Mazari Sharif, came under fire. Residents of Kandahar reported panic in the city, and that is the Taliban's spiritual stronghold and headquarters of Mullah Omar, protector of Osama bin Laden. A second wave of attacks launched about two hours later appeared aimed at the home of the Mullah. The attacks came after a Taliban minister in Kabul offered to release eight foreign aid workers on trial in the city if the U.S. promised not to strike. And the Taliban ambassador to Pakistan said that Osama bin Laden would be put on trial in Afghanistan if America chose to bring a prosecution. Washington rejected both proposals. While the U.S. publicly attempted to build an international coalition to support its war in Afghanistan, only the U.S. and Britain participated in the attack. A senior administration official said the fewer people you have to rely on, the fewer permissions you have to get. Last week, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld toured the Middle East in an attempt to gain military support from U.S. allies, but Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Oman, Uzbekistan refused to allow the U.S. to launch military attacks from their soil. Last night's strikes were launched from aircraft carriers and submarines in the Gulf, the British base on the island of Diego Garcia, and from bases in the U.S. Midwest. The attacks involved 15 bombers, 25 strike aircraft, and 50 sea-launched Tomahawk cruise missiles, according to a Pentagon spokesperson. Today, NATO members agreed only to send five surveillance aircraft to the U.S. to free up U.S. aircraft for counterterrorism operations elsewhere. U.S. military sources say the bombing, which Washington carried out with the help of British military forces, will carry on for several evenings to come. And the U.S. Defense Secretary says the conflict could take several years. Yeah, that, uh, that last part's a kicker. Uh, so, <laughs> my name is uh, Dan Burgess. This is Infinite Arguments. Uh, no Kelly tonight, but I'm joined uh, by our graphic designer, J. Andrew World, uh, as well, of course, as our and Jacobin's producer, uh, Kale Brooks. Uh, and in a little while, I'm going to be talking to Daniel Bessner and Derek Davison, the co-hosts of the American Prestige podcast. Uh, and which means, of course, this could be a very, very foreign policy heavy episode. And obviously, we're going to be talking a lot more Afghanistan then. Uh, but I wanted to just start out with that open about the, the beginning of the war, uh, because it is really striking to me as, as somebody who um, was, you know, I was 21 when the, uh, the war in Afghanistan started. 
Uh, and uh, so this has been about half of my life that the United States uh, has been at war in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, may take several years. Uh, and what really hits me about this, thinking back to uh, to when it started and what it was like uh, to be a sort of, you know, wild-eyed chomsky lunatic such as myself who thought that the United States should not invade Afghanistan, uh, which is a position that like nobody took uh, back then. That was like, that was radical fringe stuff. Uh, we were talking about this last night on the stream and even uh, like the standard center left, maybe we shouldn't invade Iraq position uh, in 2002 was, well, uh, we don't want to distract resources from this incredibly important war that, of course, we should definitely be involved in in Afghanistan. Uh, that that was the sort of Bill Maher-ish position. That was Barack Obama's position in his celebrated speech, uh, you know, saying that the United States uh, shouldn't uh, shouldn't invade Iraq. Uh, and this was just completely taken for granted uh, that, you know, that maybe if you were some sort of like quasi Amish pacifist, uh, then, you know, then maybe you'd be so crazy that you'd have a problem with invading Afghanistan. But everybody else, of course, understood that this is something we need to do. And I guess before I, I throw to uh, Andy and Kale, I just want to say it is really amazing to look back at that now, because what is it that was going to take several years? Um, capturing Osama bin Laden? Nope. Uh, he was killed in Pakistan. Uh, you know, uninvaded uh, U.S. ally. Um, liberating the women of Afghanistan? Nope. Uh, in, uh, in fact, uh, even before uh, the, uh, the, the U.S.-backed regime fell, I think we have a graphic of this, uh, the, uh, that uh, Afghanistan uh, was actually ranked uh, number 166 uh, in, the, uh, in the world uh, in terms of uh, out of 167, Afghanistan was 166 out of 167 in terms of the uh, the rights of women and girls. Uh, Iraq uh, was 162, uh, which you know combine that you'd almost start to get the idea that the United States was not invading these countries uh, for the sake of uh, feminism. Uh, but um, that's that didn't happen either, and. Um, Spreading Afghanistan, you know, spreading like modern pluralistic uh, liberal democracy to Afghanistan. Nope. Uh, there was about as much democracy as usually is able to coexist uh, in any other situation uh, with a military occupation of a hostile population. In any case, the nanosecond that uh, Biden started to take the troops out, uh, the regime that had been just barely propped up by U.S. troops collapsed anyway, meaning that we literally reset to the pre-2001 status quo. So uh, obviously, if you're a weapons contractor, this was great. You know, you made a lot of money in, uh, in, the, last, uh, in the last 20 years, um, you know, maybe. But otherwise, um, if you're just a normal person, I, I would be just desperately curious to hear what it was that this war was supposed to have accomplished for, for anybody, what the point was. Maybe you want to share your thoughts first. I'm, I'm sorry. You just if you want to share first. Oh yeah, no, it's just um, 
uh, it's it's had me kind of thinking of the the American uh, project of um, uh, imperialism and, and kind of how we do it in this country, which is a little different than than uh, some other places. And uh, you know, we kind of uh, you know took our time to perfect this, starting like in the uh, the uh, 1800s, where we started having like slave states in South and Central America to um, you know, to be future states once the, uh, so the South can, can, you know, precede their, that fight of having, uh, you know, entering slave states into the union. So the, you know, but like the, the, uh, but, but it just seems like, like nobody was even doing that. Uh, uh, it, it's, it's like a complete, you know, like nobody was even thinking of like what the next step was. It's like, Oh, we're here. And then nothing happened for 20 years. It's just, uh, uh, you know, it, it's it's like we kind of lost track of the script and, and we're just like going through the motions at this point. It's really, you know, like I'm, I'm just like I'm sad at the state of American imperialism. Yeah, it's not like how it used to be. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's it's a bit strange because the vast majority of my life has been when the U.S. was at war with Afghanistan. Uh, or a war within, you know, fighting uh, the people of Afghanistan. And um, I'm not 20, but I'm not far from it. <laughs> um, and it's so it's very strange because this was just like growing up, this was part of, you know, the backdrop to, to everything, uh, you know, every kind of milestone in my life. Um, there was also... Yeah, and you know it's happening in the context of a country where we are at war in Afghanistan, we're at war in Iraq. Um, and to Ben's point, I mean, there's it's it's very hard to say like what the real point of this whole thing was for any ordinary person. Um, I, as someone who has spent a decent time trying to study these things, is also like, yeah, really, what was the point. Um, I mean, it, there, there was, you know, it, I think part of the problem, like just to Andy's, uh, uh, to what Andy said of kind of, you know, worrying what it used to be, um, you know, it's still a racket, but uh, it's also the case that war in the 21st century is, is very dramatically different than war has been in the 20th century. Um, and both of them have been very, very different than war for like the vast majority of like human civilization prior. Um, and a big part of that is that, you know, the US didn't go in for territorial acquisition. The point wasn't to like acquire Afghanistan and bring it into, you know, make it, a, you know, now new US land or something. Um, it was largely just a, a, a project of pillaging of, uh, you know, taking what we can, but, even then, I mean, it's not like Afghanistan has tremendous uh, resources. I mean, I, I think the even the, the the whole argument of, you know, we went to war in Iraq for oil is, I think, a little bit overblown. The, the point for both of these situations was largely American hegemony. And uh, it was a political decision of um, a big part of it was kind of uh, flexing American power in an age where it's increasingly clear that the U.S. does not have uh, total, you know, uh, political and economic hegemony in the way that it did for the second half of the 20th century. Um, and uh, countless people have, you know, had their lives destroyed from from this 
from our involvement in this country. And the U.S. is not more of a hegemon than it was in the turn of the century. It's arguably far less. Um, I mean, that's where you, you see these schisms with, with uh, Iran in the region um, over, you know, who, who really has kind of regional control over, over you know, politics and markets. And um, that's why, you know, we continue to bolster uh, the Israeli government, the Saudi Arabian government of, of, of trying to flex our influence in the region. Um, but it's, it's so clear that, and I think it's become especially clear for the ruling class that this is just nothing but a boondoggle. They're, they're, they're not getting anything out of this. Um, the Trump administration pro prolonged, uh, uh, you know, this in a way that probably hate to say it, but if the Democrats were in office, I, I would guess that like the successor to Obama, which would, I guess would have been Hillary, despite the fact that yes, she's obviously a hawk and more of a hawk than Obama. My sense is the Democrats probably, um, would have decided to wind down, you know, the, uh, this war earlier. And I think Trump probably prolonged just out of, you know, kind of, you know, I think a lot of the Trumpian foreign policy was was fueled with like, you know, just an extra layer of hubris. Um, that's part of like leaving the Iran nuclear deal. And um, but it, it's to me, it just this is it's an interesting moment because in some ways, like putting the Trump administration to the side, this has all been kind of on a trajectory since the beginning of the the 21st century. Um, and it's not really clear what you know, American foreign policy continues to be uh, outside of things like, you know, and it, the problem is that it ends up becoming even more covert, even more brutal in, um, you know, in, in the uh, usage of technology of, um, you know, highly advanced weapon systems of, uh, you know, private uh, contractors that um, more and more of the conflicts end up in the shadows uh, as you know, the American empire kind of flails around, not really sure where it's actually going. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, yeah. it's a good thing to see us leaving, but it's also, you know, it's, there's no like, you know, immediate uh, cathartic, like resolution to this, I think is, is what I'm trying to express. No, for sure. Uh, I, I mean, I think that, I think that it, if you do read it as a gangsterish to play display of power, um, you know, above all else that, uh, that, oh, this is a, you know, inc this insignificant country, you know, crossed us and, you know, and, 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 and like this is just a way of, of asserting general American hegemony. Then that too goes on the list of missions not accomplished because right. uh, this is anything uh, but an effective display of American hegemony that, you know, you spend uh, 20 years uh, in this pre-industrial society and you lose. Um, that, that's, that's, that sends a pretty bad message there. Uh, but I'm glad that you brought up the, uh, the point about Trump. Uh, this actually transitions us, uh, to, uh, the next thing, uh, which is that, uh, as, um, as some people uh, may remember, although it's been a couple of weeks since we talked about it, uh, there is this, uh, debate hosting, a website, uh, called town circle with an S, uh, where, uh, you have, they, um, uh, as well as hosting debates, they do this thing where to uh, to incentivize people to agree to them. Uh, they have, um, you know, they, they do fundraising for uh, for charity. Uh, so you know the, the pledges go through uh, if the uh, if the other person uh, agrees. 
Uh, and uh, the, the person, they, they kind of, you know, when they approached me to see if I'd be interested in doing this, the person that they talked about uh, was uh, one Charlie Kirk. Uh, and uh, soon to know, be friend of the show. <laughs> yes, yes, friend, friend of the show, Charlie Kirk. Soon uh, to be, soon to be, soon to be, soon to be. Yeah, uh, and um, and you know, first I was like, I don't know, Charlie Kirk, but then then when I thought about it, uh, I think that there there is actually a reason why this would be this would be good. This would be this this would be a uh, a worthwhile uh, change of pace to debate Kirk. Uh, you know. Uh, given the kind of debates that, that I usually have. So there's this video that interviewed me about it a little bit. Um, uh, and uh, we are going to play that right now. I should note that the uh, the interview was over a week ago. I don't remember exactly. Uh, and um, more money has been raised since then. Uh, it's uh, at this point, I think the amount of money that's been raised, if, if Kirk agreed to uh, this discussion, uh, would would pay for about uh, four thousand, a little over four thousand meals, uh, for uh, for people who need them. So, um, you know, it's uh, seems like he uh, he has a chance to do a good thing here, and uh, you know, whatever. It's just talking. You know, nobody gets hurt. So uh, let's uh, let's let's play that video right now, and we're going to talk about it for a minute, and then uh, and then uh, we're going to bring on Derek and uh, and Danny. Steve Hayes, and welcome to Town Circle, where public figures from all sides of the aisle invite each other to live debates and conversations in order to unlock money that's been pledged to charity to help those in need. Today, we have Ben Burgess on to tell us why he's invited Charlie Kirk to debate him on Trumpian populism versus democratic socialism. Ben, welcome to Town Circle. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, before we delve into your debate invite, it'd be great if you could give us a little background on yourself. Tell us a little bit about democratic socialism and where the movement is today. Steve Hayes and yes, my day job. That's that's my day job. I am a philosophy instructor. Uh, that's that's my day job and a columnist uh, for Jacobin Magazine, uh, which is uh, the biggest outlet, you know, for media outlet for, uh, for democratic socialist uh, politics. And that, I guess, gets us to the other part of your question, because I think that, you know, for most of, you know, certainly, you know, the 20th century, uh, socialism uh, was kind of a dirty word in American politics. Uh, and uh, things have, started to uh, to change obviously you know bernie sanders um losing you know the uh, presidential election is a huge setback but uh, but i think that uh we we currently have you know uh dsa democratic socialists of america uh you know which has something like a hundred thousand members certainly the largest socialist organizations exist in the united states for a very long time you know decades and decades uh, and uh, there, there are you know several people who are at least loosely aligned with it. You know who are in Congress. Uh, there, there's stuff like uh, like Jacobin Magazine uh, and and other elements of kind of a left media infrastructure, which you know in a small way I'm I'm part of not just for you know writing for Jacobin, but because uh, I host a show called Give Them an Argument, uh, and which uh, of course is what I, I'm trying to uh, to do in this case. But uh, but I, I think that uh, it's you know, broadly speaking, 
at least the sort of short-term goals of democratic socialists, things like uh, giving everybody health care and um, ending, you know, ending America's, you know, wars uh, abroad and having, um, and, you know, and, and uh, making it much easier to, uh, to organize unions and, and paying everybody, you know, more, you know, by, by raising the minimum mm-hmm. wage to something that people can actually afford, you know, renting groceries with, I think are, uh, are broadly uh, are broadly popular. I think there's some polling evidence uh, that uh, that a lot more people are at least open to some sort of more basic systemic you know critique of the way the economy is organized right now than it used to be. Uh, and and this is uh, this is exactly why I think that having you know debates between the right, like the kind of you know the kind of right that we really have now, you know, in the in the post-Trump era, and democratic socialists is so important. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that brings me to Charlie Kirk and, mm. uh, and Trumpian populism. Uh, obviously many people know who Charlie Kirk is, uh, but for those who don't, it'd be great, you know, give it, give us the skinny on Charlie Kirk and maybe, you know, unpack uh, Trumpian populism. Yeah. So, uh, so Charlie Kirk is uh, the founder of uh, Turning Points uh, USA uh, was was a major figure in in um, you know Trump world through turning points taking over uh, students you know students for Trump uh, and uh, and this is again one of the reasons why I think this would be a, an interesting and worthwhile thing uh, because when when you start thinking about Trumpian populism um, you know which is a is a term I'm using because it's like how lots of those people would describe their own politics. Uh, but my question is always what's, what's populist about it? Like in practice, uh, you know, what's, what's populist about it since uh, all of those short-term goals that I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, Medicare for all, uh, mm-hmm. which in, in some, you know, in some polls, even a majority of grassroots Republicans, you know, very slight majority, you know, would, would, would support uh, certainly, certainly big chunks of it. So, you know, nobody was ever had to be bankrupted by medical bills again, uh, you know, rate, you know, uh, raising the minimum wage to something that people could could live on. Uh, all of these things are things that alleged Trumpian populists are against, um, and uh, they they talk about you know bringing jobs back uh, or you know eliminating competition for for those jobs from immigrants maybe, uh, but in practice with you know with uh, workers you know who are here right now. Uh, the, the whole thing strikes me as, um, you know, honestly, as, as being, a, being a con job. I mean, I think that this is, uh, I think that this is just conservatism with, with some anti-elite branding. That's, that's my position. Uh, and of course, you know, again, exactly why I think this is a kind of debate that's worth having. Yeah. So because our mission, you know, is to bring public figures from all walks of life together to have these live debates and conversations and to unlock money for, you know, our fellow Americans in need and to really use that as a catalyst, as an extra value add to have the conversations that are not being had, um, which is really the core of why we built Town Circle. Um, what, What positive results could potentially come from this debate besides obviously unlocking the money, you know, that that's been pledged to feed those in need. Yeah. Well, I mean, that last part would already be significant. I think as of the time we're making this video, 
Uh, I don't remember exactly, but I, I think about 3,500 meals, maybe, I think. Yeah. Yeah. About 3,500 meals we paid for by what's been raised already. Uh, so obviously that would be, you know, that would be significant. Um, and, uh, and so that would, that would make a, a real difference, you know, if, uh, if Charlie, you know, uh, doesn't walk away from this, uh, which, you know, which I, I hope he doesn't, I should say, by the way, that, that part of the reason, you know, that, that we picked, uh, Charlie Kirk, uh, for this is that I, I don't want to waste people's time. And I think he might actually do it. Uh, it's this, this isn't, um, you know, this isn't symbolic. This isn't like, um, you know, saying, you know, scoring points like, Oh, you know, uh, you know, he, you know, he's not willing to do stuff like this. I think he might do it. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think it would be, I think it would be a real shame if he didn't not be, not just cause those 3,500 meals, uh, mm -hmm. and, and not just cause, you know, it would be, it'd be interesting to me, uh, which it certainly would be. I mean, I spend a lot of time debating libertarians, but I think, you know, honestly mm -hmm. on the right today for every hardcore, you know, kind of fundamentalist about property rights, uh, non-aggression libertarian, there are like a hundred people who have Charlie Kirk's politics. Uh, and, uh, but also because, uh, look, Charlie Kirk has said that democratic socialism is, I think the phrase is the biggest scam uh, in, uh, in, in human history. Uh, and I have, I have suggested that I think that that's, um, that the converse of that is, uh, is much closer to, uh, to, to being true, you know, that they, that, uh, that Trumpism, you know, the, the current that, uh, that Kirk has aligned himself with so much in the last few years you know, mm -hmm. claims to be uh, claims to be populist, uh, claims to be about you know helping salt the earth, ordinary people, uh, you know, against uh, against elites. But then, when it comes to anything that would actually uh, help uh, those 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 ordinary people, uh, the the kinds of people that Trump would frequently talk about when he was running for president, who were you know who were hurting in the Rust Belt because you know lost jobs, etc. When it comes to anything that would actually help them, right? Like putting. Uh, putting kids in cages doesn't actually help them. That doesn't put an extra dollar in their pockets. Uh, you know, you know, banning people from certain, you know, uh, uh, Muslim nations, you know, doesn't do anything uh, to uh, to give them health care. You know, when it comes to things that would actually pay for, you know, pay for doctor's visits, would actually uh, give people uh, tons of new unionized jobs with Green New Deal, anything like that, um, you know, Kirk and the rest of the Trumpists seem to be against it. So, uh, so I, I think that uh, I think that it's it's one of these things. Very easy to say, hey, I think you're full of shit. Uh, I, I don't I don't think this would actually help help people at all. Which I guess is what he's said about us, and and I've, I've I've said it to him. But I think it's it's way more interesting, way more productive to actually say that to each other, so you can get the best response in the room. Yeah. Do you, do you think a positive result? Because, I mean, the chances of you guys changing each other's minds may be. Sure. Slim. Very, very, very minimal. Uh, very minimal. But but some other positive outcomes could come uh, of, for the audience. And I for me, I think like just seeing you two do it, showing the country that you're able to be completely diametrically opposed politically, but that you can come together, you know, for a debate, I think would be a huge positive, particularly with two gentlemen of, of you know, of your stature. I mean, look. I think that uh, I think that the purpose of debate is almost never to convince uh, the the other person, you know, on the stage if it's in person or in the other half of the YouTube screen, you know, if uh, if it's if it's not because uh, 
because most of us realistically, you know, people do change their minds and they change their mind as a result of arguments, but it's a, it's a slow process. And, yeah. you know, and, and generally speaking, by the time you've gotten to the point where your life is devoted to advocating for what you believe politically, you know, you're, you're pretty emotionally invested in it and it's going to, you know, people do change even at that level, but it's, it's slow. It takes some time. Uh, that's, that's not really, I think the immediate goal. I think the immediate goal uh, is to reach out to whoever can be reached uh, in the audience. And that audience right now, I mean, you know, media is so spectacularly segmented right now that, uh, that they, that, the audience is never going to be the same audience unless you're talking to each other. That's the only right. circumstance under which, right. you know, people who would listen to what Charlie Kirk have to say, people who would listen to what I have to say, by and large, right, are going to be in the same, you know, in the same uh, in the same audience. And uh, and so I, I think that that's I think that's that's tremendously valuable. I mean, obviously, I'm I'm confident in in. Uh, in, in my ideas and in, and in the force of, you know, left's arguments. So I'm, I'm confident that that would be, you know, much more good, good than bad for me. I would assume that, you know, that, that he's, that he would have, you know, he would have the parallel confidence. Uh, but, uh, but regardless, I think that it's, I think that it's something that, uh, you know, convincible people in the audience might be convinced by and just people who are, you know, who maybe aren't going to have any big shifts, but are just curious about this stuff in the audience yeah. can learn from. Great. Awesome. Well, Ben, thank you so much for coming on today. We hope that we will be moderating this debate between you and Charlie before time runs out in, I think, 23 days from now. Just so you know, we'll be reaching out to him and his team um, about a week from now. We're going to start doing outreach uh, to see you know, to see if we can get an answer. Um, in, in the meantime, obviously, we want uh, as many people to pledge to increase the, the uh, impact that Charlie can make by accepting uh, your debate invite. But yeah, I just want to, thanks a lot for coming on today to explain everything. All right, thank you. Okay. All right. Um, so again, that's uh, town circle with an S uh, com slash event slash 89. Uh, it's up to about 4,000 meals uh, pledged so far. Uh, but just to uh, you know, make it maximally uh, embarrassing if he if he doesn't do it, you know, let's let's make that like five thousand or ten thousand. Um, and uh, and I and I guess I just want to say, like, to underline what I said in the in the video. I mean, I've kind of joked before that I'm sure I'm still going to be, you know, doing debates with hardcore libertarians where, like, I I trot out, you know, Matt Brunig's, you know. Uh, point about arguments for the non-aggression principle being circular until I'm in my 90s and I have to be wheeled out on stage and I can't quite get it together mentally to remember why they're circular. Uh, but uh, but I think there is something that's that's valuable about engaging with uh, people uh, people like Kirk because uh, that's you know they represent like approximately 100 trillion times more people uh, than uh, than those those hardcore. Uh, libertarians do, uh, and um, and I think the point is really important about how you know there is this sort of um, you know pseudo populist grift uh, that you know that uh, you know Trump certainly claimed, and you know people like this claim that you know Marco Rubio has been trying to to step into this, Josh Howley, uh, a bunch of these other guys that oh they're really looking out for the working class or at least the native born working class. 
uh, and they're really against elites. But of course, anything that would actually uh, materially help working class people, they're against. Uh, they're against raising the minimum wage. They're against giving everybody health care. And uh, to transition to what I'm about to talk to Derek and Danny about, uh, even the, uh, the the foreign policy component of it uh, was uh, was largely bullshit. Uh, there was, uh, you know, there was a lot of rhetoric aimed in the direction of showing that Trump, you know, was was some sort of right wing isolationist. Uh, you know, that they, they use the phrase America first a lot. Uh, but if you actually, you know, um, to uh, uh, as a uh, you know atheist with Jewish roots, you know, feel strange to use this particular you know reference, but uh, you know, know them by their fruits. Uh, you know, like like what did uh, what did these guys actually do? Right? Trump doubled the rate of drone strikes. Uh, you know, people often say he didn't start any new wars, which is a little bit like doing a victory lap because you set off a bunch of fireworks in dry woods and none of them quite caught fire. Uh, you know, he, he assassinated Soleimani, you know, brought us closer than, you know, we've been to uh, the brink of Iran after tearing up the nuclear deal, uh, you know, dramatically tightened sanctions on, on Cuba to try to bring about regime change in that country. Uh, something I was arguing with Glenn Greenwald about on, on Twitter a while back because, you know, Glenn was sort of trying to push, you know, a good thing, which is opposition to U.S. intervention in Cuba when people were floating that by saying, oh, this goes against America first. And I understand what he was trying to do because he was trying to appeal to Trumpists in their own language. But I just think that's not going to be convincing because everybody can see what Trump actually did. Uh, and and that, um, you know, there was much more continuity than discontinuity, you know, certainly from Obama uh, to uh, to Trump. And a lot of the areas of discontinuity were, were areas where he was more belligerent. Uh, but in any case, I want to get into all this uh, with uh, Derek and Danny. Uh, so let's uh, let's bring them on. Uh, the uh, they are the co-hosts of a uh, brand spanking new podcast uh, called American Prestige. Uh, that uh, that is it. Uh, welcome, guys. Hey, Ben. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So uh, I want to obviously get into some more topical things, but uh, but tell oh, tell us about the show. Sorry, you cut out. Would you say tell what? Oh, sorry. I said uh, I want to get into some more topical things, but uh, tell us about the new show. Oh, okay. Yeah. I uh, heard you, but I was waiting for Danny because he's better at this than I am. So Yeah, I'm also a dom. I mean, we're both switches, <laughs> so we go back and forth, but I'll dom today. Um, I mean, essentially, we, we thought that they're really, as, as a lot of the listeners uh, to this show, a lot of the viewers undoubtedly know, that the foreign policy coverage of the mainstream media is pretty bleak um it it sometimes the reporting could be good but the assumptions that frame the reporting the assumption of american hegemony uh, both military hegemony and economic hegemony the idea that you know you really are able to trust the american state uh, the notion that world peace and prosperity and the future of the American people rests on American dominance. Um, all of that really frames, we think in a negative way, how the mainstream media understands U.S. foreign relations. And both Derek and I think that historically, empirically, the last 20 years has demonstrated beyond the shadow of a doubt. And the last 48 hours has demonstrated beyond the shadow of a doubt 
that a lot of the assumptions that have guided American foreign policy for all of our entire lives really need to fundamentally be rethought. So what we try to do on the podcast is provide, you know, weekly news of what's going on in the world, but to explain that news from a heterodox perspective, a critical perspective that assumes the humanity of all people living on Earth and doesn't privilege American citizens' lives over other people's, and also assumes that maybe the U.S. actually makes the world worse and not better. So we do news at the beginning of the show, and then we usually have an interview um, with an expert, um, not only on on uh, current affairs, but we often did that. We had Asal Rod to talk about Iran. We had Matt Duss, Bernie Sanders' foreign policy advisor, to discuss progressive foreign policy. Um, but we also try to take a more historically informed view, like we had Stephen Wertheim to talk about the beginnings of U.S. dominance and why the U.S. dominated the world. So in these ways, through this sort of news coverage and this more analytical part of our podcast, we hope to bring a genuinely new perspective to the uh, theory and practice of American foreign policy. Nice. So that was uh, really know- good. That was really good. <laughs> uh, yeah, he subs well. Uh, so, um, so yeah, you, you mentioned the last uh, forty-eight hours. Uh, Kale, do we have the uh, the footage? Uh, of uh, of the, the the pullout from uh, from Afghanistan. Okay, yeah. So uh, this is uh, this is the the footage from the United States uh, pulling its last hell. Oh shit. Okay, sorry. Uh, Kale fucked up. Uh, this is uh, this is actually the uh, footage from the United so States bad. South Vietnam in uh, 1975. But it's a, uh, it's an easy mistake to make. Yeah. Not not all that dissimilar. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, one of the the things that um, that really strikes me about this is that uh, this has been twenty years. Uh, you know, saying earlier that like uh, I'm, you know, for somebody who does left media, I'm old, and uh, the uh, this is like half of my life uh, that uh, the uh, the United States has been at war in Afghanistan and a. Tra- Tremendous amount of, of of money has been spent over the course of uh, of, of those twenty years, and it, it just seemed like the the uh, the nanosecond uh, U.S. troops started to leave uh, the uh, this like the whole you know house of cards you know just 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 fell just immediately just no delay at all like like I saw uh, our friend Bhaskar Sankara pointing out you know a few days ago. If you look at the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, you know, I mean, it was the collapse after that was 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 much slower, you know, uh, which which presumably tells you that the PDPA, you know, the uh, the Soviet backed government in Afghanistan uh, had at least more of a popular base of support. I mean, this this, this just I mean, th- this is just like uh, no pretense to that at all. Well, it, I mean, it certainly had more popular support. It had a functioning military, which the Afghan government has never had in 20 years, uh, despite uh, tens of billions of dollars poured into building up the, the security state. Um, what we learned and what we have learned in, in the last few days um, was you had military units in, in places that were totally cut off from resupply uh, we're getting, you know, there's one police unit. Um, I, I don't remember the details of this, but you know, they got their weekly rations and it was like one box of potatoes that were rotting. Um, you know, it was just a, a catastrophe. And, and of course these people 
when presented with the opportunity, there's a piece in the, the Washington Post yesterday about this. Uh, these nego- there, there were negotiations going on. I mean, the Taliban started um, you know, offering to, to pay for weapons, and those negotiations continued and expanded into, you know, hey, if you guys, when the time comes, if, uh, if you guys don't fight, you're not going to get killed. And of course, under the circumstances, you're in a military f- working for a government that has very little popular support anymore, doesn't control much territory outside of Kabul, uh, with an officer class that is larger than the U.S. military's officer class, uh, despite the fact that the overall military is much smaller than the U.S. military, uh, that consists of a lot of you know generals and high officers who have their hands out. Uh, you know, the problem of ghost soldiers was a huge one. Um, you know, these these non-existent personnel where the paycheck would just come and get kicked upstairs. No show um, jobs, like on The Sopranos, basically. Yeah, no, exactly. No, no show, show jobs. jobs. I mean, that's what they yeah. were. Um, and, and, you know, why would you, in, under those circumstances, put your life on the line to, to fight for this institution? It's, um, you know, it's not surprising, given all we've learned over the past, you know, let's say even just 48 hours, it's not surprising uh, how quickly this happened. And it's interesting, it reminds me just very quickly, Ben, of the stories you hear in the very, very late Soviet Union. 88, 89, 90, 91, where things like you would order an army uh, division to go somewhere and it just wouldn't. You know, it's kind of, we talk about hyper reality in the United States, but it just shows everyone knew the Afghan government was not legitimate, that had no support. And everyone knew the second the United States left, really the second the United States left, it would collapse. I, and Derek could speak to this more, but we knew this with the release of the Afghan, uh, Afghanistan papers in 2019. You know, this isn't a surprise and anyone paying attention would have been able to predict with fair accuracy as, as Derek did what would happen once the United States left. Yeah. So, so actually uh, for anybody who doesn't remember that the Afghanistan papers, can you just review that real quick? Yeah, the Afghanistan papers were reported by the Washington Post in December 2019. And and basically, um, without going all into the nitty gritty of it, the upshot was everything that the United States military, uh, everything that uh, the United States government had been saying about the war in Afghanistan for the past 18 years, the previous 18 years was a lie. Uh, every time the United States said, oh, the Afghan, you know, the Afghan military is standing up there. We're going to be ready to take on the mission. That was a lie. Every time, you know, we talked about, uh, you know, restoring uh, control, restoring the government, government control to different parts of the country. It was a lie. These were all lies. Um, and and they knew it. I mean, you know, this was not like a, uh, a lie caused by lack of information. We, we our government knew uh, that none of this was was happening and still told the American people the opposite. Um, and and we, you know, it, it generated like a few days worth of coverage and uh, people got upset. And I don't you know, I'm, I'm not saying I'm any better. I did the same thing. We all just kind of moved on. And, and granted, this was in the middle of the Trump administration where you had 10 stories every week that would have been like an entire year-long saga in any other time in American history. Um, and granted, it's Afghanistan, and, and there, you know, there is a tendency to let this kind of thing wash over us at some point after 18, 20 years. Um, but it still was, you know, everything that you need to know about what's happening now was was in the Afghanistan papers and the reporting about it. The, it it's, it's all, we knew this was going to happen. Yeah, I mean, which, which, which makes it, 
like especially remarkable uh that um you know i mean okay so this didn't come out you know until a couple of years ago but um but certainly i mean there are lots of reports from way before then of like people no, the, had, yeah i mean the special inspector general for afghan reconstruction has been doing this stuff since uh i think 2008 maybe um you know quarterly reports and every single time saying you know Here's a billion dollars that got wasted on this. Here's a half a billion dollars that got wasted on that. And it's it's been a steady stream of those things. But again, it kind of fades into the uh, the noise in the background. And that's why I think you've got to be furious about it. When we talk about the sheer amount of money that was wasted on this fucking pointless, destructive war and the amount of time we spent in this country arguing over $2,000 checks and forgiving student loans, it really makes you absolutely furious about where our country is in this moment. It's abhorrent and it's disgusting. And the fact that everyone isn't just tearing their hair out in shame and anger at all moments really boggles my mind. Yeah, I mean, like, it, it really seems like more than anything, uh, I mean, it's, um, you know, I mean, it's it's the, uh, well, you know, you've used the phrase, I, I think, uh, uh, upcoming book, uh, imperialist realism, uh, you know, which is, you know, it's the, like the foreign policy analog to the capitalist realism Mark Fisher talked about, where you, where, where you don't have... Uh, you know, it's it's not that uh, you know, you celebrate capitalism and you love it, and you know you you think it's the you know the sort of unregulated you know neoliberal hellscape is the best possible kind of society. It's just that you don't think that you could have a different kind of society. That's that that's the uh, that your entire experience has taught you that this is just the deal and nothing's ever really going to change. So why worry about it? And uh, I'm not sure if this is exactly you know where you're going using that phrase, but I mean like it, it seems like there is a pretty pretty tight analog there that um you know the war in afghanistan was very popular when it first started but you know i mean popular opinion was has been um in favor of leaving for a long time uh and uh you know and, and most you know why aren't people outraged about that the fact that all of these i mean actually what is the cumulative price tag for the last 20 years like ballpark um, I, well, I, I will probably never know, but I mean, I've seen estimates as high as, you know, $2 trillion. Uh, when you add, when you roll everything in the, the military aid, the humanitarian assistance, the, this governance support, um, at least, uh, if we want to stick to just security spending, I mean, we've spent, I think $83 billion on the Afghan military, most of which, uh, now belongs to the Taliban in the form of, vehicles and and swanky weapons and and things that uh, you know the afghan forces dropped as they were retreating and and the taliban now own yeah so there's i see there's an article from uh uh Kelsime from the new york times from 2019 you know giving that two trillion uh estimate uh, and yeah, it seems like the reason that people aren't outraged that uh, that the that two trillion dollars that could have been spent on all those things that Daddy's talking about uh, were were spent on um, like yeah, twenty years of you know roadside checkpoints and degrading people in house to house searches early on and uh, bombing wedding parties, death squads as the Intercept revealed, you know, real true crimes against people. Um, making defense contractors and local mercenaries wealthy, uh, you know, de developing infrastructure that enriched a lot of private corporations. It's just a total waste in every shape or form. 
people should be absolutely furious. Yeah, and, and, so, and so the question is, why aren't they? And I don't think that it's mostly that they think that, uh, I mean, some people do, of course, right? But I don't, I don't think that the great bulk of people who should be furious about who, that aren't because they think that that's awesome. And clearly, this is something that the United States should have should have done, uh, and you know this this was a wonderful use of all of that money. Uh, it's uh, it's that they just sort of they're just sort of there's this sort of background buzz resignation, like oh yeah, I mean whatever, it's America, this is what we do. I mean like like literally uh, for for you know lots of people who are adults now, their entire lives, you know, this particular war was going on. Uh, but, uh, but even, even if that, that's not literally true for, you know, for somebody, you know, the, the sort of general sense, um, that this is, that this is how it works, you know, I mean, I, I think is, is something that, yeah, of course, you know, this is the United States, this is what we do, you know, like, like I often think about, uh, there's this famous quote, uh, allegedly from, uh, from National Review writer, uh, Michael Ledeen. Uh, where he uh, he says every ten years. What a so. great book yeah. with Michael Flynn! Everyone should check it out. A lot of really interesting insights. Completely <laughs> off the wall. Yeah. I actually wrote a review of that book. It's fucking insane. It's like literally as conspiratorial as QAnon. You know, an alliance between Cuba, China, and the Saudis type situation. You know, real real off the wall stuff. Yeah. So Ladine has this famous quote where he says. Every 10 years or so, the United States needs to pick up some small, crappy little country and throw it against the wall right. just to show the world we mean business. And um, which is really the only, you know, possible terms, I think, in which you can, you know, just given that all of the other, you know, constantly goalpost shifting uh, explanations for why the United States, you know, uh, needed to be in Afghanistan, you know, like, like I've, I've just been utterly like debt like like none of them make any sense in retrospect right but um but i guess at least theoretically it would have accomplished that except it did it because i mean this is like the you know you you try to throw the guy against the wall and then it kicks your ass yeah pretty much i mean it, it didn't it didn't accomplish that um but we didn't i mean if that was the goal, um, and it, it may have been on some level at the beginning, we had accomplished that within like three months of the initial invasion. Like you could have stopped there, uh, but instead we got sucked into 20 years of nation building. They, yeah, I mean, basically enriched contractors uh, and, and accomplished nothing uh, uh, worthwhile in Afghanistan, clearly. Uh, nothing lasting anyway. Um, so yeah, I, you know, if, if you were just looking to show your muscle that, then this has been a real exercise in, in futility for the last 20 years. And yeah, the thing and that I'm, really sticks in my craw, sorry, the thing that really sticks in my craw is that all of the people who made careers in this war will suffer absolutely no consequences for all of the human misery for which they are directly responsible. That is also one of the most frustrating things that we're all going to have to live with. Yeah, and, and so I want to just do a quick tour of the the sort of decision points uh, that uh, that got us to those those twenty years. Uh, Kale, I think we have uh, this. This is from uh, this first one is uh, from before, uh, you know, after nine eleven, but before the United States invaded Afghanistan. Have the Pakistani war. Uh, 
چې زه په دې خوښه لرم چې په دې موضوع کې ځان شریکمه او که زما په وس کې دا کار وکم هغوی ما سره مشوره وکړه چې جیسې جکسن غواړي چې افغانستان ته راسي او پاکستان ته راسي افغاني مقاماتو سره وګوري که ممکن وي چې د یو په دې کې د حل لاره پیدا کولای شي and he had offered his uh, assistance in this regard uh, and his excellency had taken his uh, offer to uh, higher authorities and the higher authorities did not have any uh, problems with him coming in and, and trying to solve this problem uh, but they, it has to go through the proper channels of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs Yeah, so um there was this this offer uh, that uh, that you know J you know Jesse Jackson the Taliban was good with it was going to come in and negotiate with them uh, and uh, and you know even though even though they weren't willing to um, you know hand over Bin Laden in two thousand and one you know to the United States directly with no preconditions etc it certainly wasn't the case that you know that the Taliban line at the time was like oh we're going to defend this guy. To our last breath, there's no circumstances under which we'd ever turn him over to anyone. Well, no, I mean the the why did you talk the about Taliban the had offered other alternatives to handing him over to the United States, and and the Bush administration, uh, you know, rejected all of them. Um, there, and and by the time, really, almost immediately after the invasion, not not maybe not quite immediately, but very shortly after the invasion. Uh, it was a moot point because Bin Laden was hiding in, in you know, the Tora Bora and crossing over to Pakistan, and uh, there, there probably there really wasn't anything the Taliban could do at that point, even if they wanted to hand him over. Um, but there were offers made in that initial, uh, you know, month after or three weeks, let's say, uh, after September 11th, to to turn Bin Laden over to a third party for some kind of a, a trial, some kind of a, a criminal proceeding. Um, and and we weren't satisfied with that because I think you know as to to go back to what you said Ben there was a a, a zeal to kind of go in and and bust some heads and show that uh, we mean business. Yeah, uh, and and I think it's an important point because as as hard as this is to remember, and I mean maybe I'm just like bitter because 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 I remember like how uncomfortable it was, you know, to uh, take the sort of, uh, you know, radical fringe position in, uh, in 2001, uh, you know, which I certainly did as a young anti-war activist, the United States should not be invading Afghanistan. Uh, but as hard as it is to remember now, like after, you know, leading up to the invasion, you know, the like there was such a universal consensus among sort of the pundit class that obviously this is something that we have to do uh, in, uh, and even in like 2002, 2003, uh, this sort of standard like uh, liberal version of an anti-war line about Iraq was, well, okay, Afghanistan's one thing. That's a war of necessity, but you know, Iraq's a war of choice. That's different. It's like, no, it's, there's no fucking necessity there. I mean, there, there, there's all these, uh, you know, there are all these diplomatic offers, you know, like, like there were, you know, numerous ways. Um, I mean, even aside from the wacky thought that like a country could refuse to extradite a criminal who killed people in your country. And then you would, you just like, they would just do that. 
and there wouldn't be an invasion or bombing or anything, right? Like, like there are numerous people walking around Miami who've carried out acts of terrorism in Cuba. Uh, and, and that just, you know, that situation just persists. But I mean, even putting that aside, you know, even for trying to, you know, move, you know, to uh, turn bin Laden over to a third party, you know, have some sort of negotiated process for extraditing him somewhere uh, that was absolutely uh, on the table before the invasion. And then, uh, and then, um, Later, uh, you know, there's there's the point that you brought up earlier, Derek, which is, okay, uh, so you've made your point. You've thrown the guy against the wall. Why not just leave then? And if, you know, people are thinking, oh, but, you know, you can't do that because, you know, the Taliban comes back, whatever, which, you know, we got after. Yeah, you wouldn't want that happening. Yeah, God, imagine. <laughs> God, who can only imagine that, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But there's this uh, there's this article uh, that Ryan Grimm wrote in the Intercept in 2017 uh, that I keep uh, thinking about now, uh, where um, uh, he uh, he talks. Uh, it's uh, it's called uh, the um, here we go. Uh, the Taliban tried to surrender and the U.S. rebuffed them. Uh, now here we are, uh, where where he basically makes the point that. Um, that after the, the Taliban government initially fell and it looked like it had been thoroughly militarily defeated, um, then Taliban did what defeated factions and wars in Afghanistan, you know, wars within Afghanistan typically do, which is that they tried to negotiate some sort of surrender whereby, you know, the war would be over and they'd be reintegrated at some lower level into the power structure, which is the kind of thing that you do if you fight wars with people. But, you know, ultimately you have to keep living in the same country, but you know, we wouldn't have that either. That also wasn't good enough. Yeah. And that, I mean, it just, it's difficult to understand exact precisely why without the access to the archival documents, uh, because, you know, there might be some bureaucratic interplay that we're not aware of, but I mean, to me, from what we know now, it just is such a profound example of American hubris. And the fact that uh, this thing, this idea that I've kind of been beating on that Derek, I'm sure is probably annoyed with, but just shows the total political freedom for American leaders to do what they do because there's just, you know, most Americans aren't affected by the war. Um, there's been a demassification process since 1973 and the advent of the all volunteer force and especially since the end of the cold war and the advent of things like drones and special forces so that has really reduced the political cost of a lot of these um foreign interventions you could kind of just do what you want and i think the most salient example of that was the total collapse of the so-called anti-war movement the second barack obama got elected um you know these people weren't actually affected by war so once they were not um, once they didn't want to use it as a partisan cudgel, it goes away. It's a big different from the 68 to 70, 71 Vietnam War protest movement, which was comprised to a significant degree of people who might have actually been drafted and died in the war. Once the United States very um, cleverly, to my mind, essentially removed that um, fact from war fighting by making it only the all volunteer force in 73, it's led to this larger process where basically you could do whatever you want because it doesn't affect people. And I, I bet in two weeks, 
this will no we'll never hear about Afghanistan again, or at least we will we'll, we'll get some like bitter updates or some like graphic updates every few months with some new horror that uh, happens there. But it's really going to fall off uh, the front pages very very quickly, just as the Afghanistan papers did. Um, so I think it's a pretty grim moment um, for a lot of reasons of what's happening in Afghanistan in Afghanistan first first and foremost, but also for what this says about the American state and American state power and American politics as well. I think the 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 what Ryan's talking about the 2001 um, offer to surrender, which came in December and was rejected summarily by the uh, Bush administration, uh, is very illustrative um, of what is probably the central point to make here, which is as the United States goes around the world and kind of hops into conflicts in different places we are never going to outlast the people who live in those places, right? Uh, the United States is never going to get into a war of attrition in Afghanistan with people who live in Afghanistan and wear them out, you know, why wear them down to the point where they're going to go away and cease to exist uh, and we'll install some, you know, model which, of which is such a, such a demented peace idea and freedom. Anyway. Like, like, it like, is. It's totally demented. I mean, to, to not accept, not have accepted that surrender or not have taken any of uh, a number of other opportunities uh, over the, the, these 20 years to declare victory and end the war on better terms, much better terms in some cases than than what's you know uh, resulted now is is just this kind of depraved idea that wherever we go we're kind of uh, the the home team and and the other guys are, are gonna uh, you know wear themselves out and it's just not true it just it's it's fundamentally not yeah, the case. I, I, I mean, just on the most basic possible level, I mean, they live in the country. Like they're they're not gonna just like get worn out and, and decide to to cease to exist, uh, and and why why would it you know why would it work that way, um, yeah, and and I think that like the the sort of broader um, you know point is is really worth circling and underlining because you know I ideally I mean. I don't know. I, I keep going back and forth because there's there's a there's a there is one sort of sliver of optimism, you know, that maybe you can get out of this, which is that um, the United States leaving, you know, Afghanistan was something that at least in sort of intention and agreement, you know, started at the end of Trump, and then uh, and then uh, had uh, was brought to fruition under Biden, uh, which which does make me think maybe that the sort of um, you know, demented neocons who who would have liked the United States to be in Afghanistan for 200 years um, don't really have as much sway in either one of the, uh, you know, political parties in the United States as we might, you know, worry that they that they did, right? I mean, even as like all of these neocons, as I've heard Danny point out elsewhere, have, uh, you know, come home to the United, to, to the Democratic Party, uh, you know, when, once once they sort of realized that the uh, the Republican Party wasn't the you know, um, wasn't going to be as congenial a host for them as, as, as it, as it used to be. Um, and, you know, you certainly have lots of mainstream liberals who are, who are, you know, happy to welcome them back. Uh, but it also seems like at least in this particular case, I mean, you know, people, some of these people were reduced to things like, you know, writing Washington, Washington post op-eds, like begging the United States to at least like stay until the end of fighting season, you know, which is, which is certainly like, 
you know, a few years ago, they wouldn't have had to worry about it. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, the, one of the interesting things I think you, you saw as um, Trump announced his deal with the Taliban last year. um, And as Biden kind of came in and said, um, you know, we're not going to stick to that agreement, strictly speaking, but we are leaving by, uh, I mean, he initially said the, the 20th anniversary of 9-11. But the, the, I think you saw some of these folks, and I, I think you know of like Max Boot, for example, is the best, uh, the the one that comes to mind most readily. Um, dropping the pretense, like there was some pulling back the curtain and just kind of outright saying, "Look, this is an empire, and we have to police the empire. We have to police the frontiers. There's no getting around it. That's what empires do, and that's what Afghanistan is." And I, I think that's. Um, that's an argument that like pre-Trump when neoconservatism to, to a large extent controlled the foreign policy discourse in the Republican Party, that is not an argument that you would have seen go to print because it's not one that I think appeals to a lot of people. Uh, and it's one that's made in sort of desperation, like, okay, you know, if nothing else here, you know, we have to police the empire and um, you know, I, I do think there's a that's that may be that kind of thing may be a sign that um, in some circles at least that that group is is really scrambling to try and figure out what to do. Yeah, I, I mean, and yeah, I mean, I certainly hope so that you know that these 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 people are uh, are monsters who have uh, who have helped to bring about a uh, you know ocean of uh, of human suffering uh, and uh, and 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 having them at least be disconcerted and having less influence is a is a start. I mean, I'd I'd, I'd sort of prefer mass trials, but you know, it's a you know, it's it's better than nothing. Baby steps. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, but um, but but I mean, I, I guess. You know the point, like the sort of simple-minded point I was I was building to earlier is is just like this seems like there should be a lesson that anybody anywhere in the ideological spectrum with a sort of basic ability to like um, to to you know process evidence and come to conclusions should be able to to get to here, which is like forget the you know morality of you know the 20 years of death squads and uh uh you know bombing wedding parties and you know all that stuff uh just in terms of capacity i mean the the idea that the the you know whether it should or not the idea that the united states is able to you know to remake a society like afghanistan more to its liking just you know, like like that's just clearly not true, right? I mean, you have this like largely pre-industrial society, and 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 we just, and we just got driven. You know, we just got driven yeah. out. I mean, Ben, I would even go further than that. I think it's like a philosophical problem. Ultimately, there was this idea that arose around 1880 that one would be able to use in modern, like in the Foucauldian sense, techniques and technologies from social science to quantitative measures in order to reshape the world. And I think that idea like really informed um, the American elite's approach to politics. It starts with municipalization and local scales, which I think it's more able to be done at, but then it eventually enters a foreign policy arena with Woodrow Wilson and the, you know, the redrawing of the, I mean, our first slash only PhD president 
Um, you know, he brings the modern tools of social science to things like good advertisement for never doing that again. Yeah. Uh, so I think like there's a fundamental, like philosophical problem here, which is that like the idea that one is to able to reshape in that way, which actually, I mean, to be honest, cuts across a lot of early 20th century left-wing thinking as well. You know, I think the libertarians philosophically, the von Mises and the Hayek's had an insight which is that like you cannot quantify social relations in an extremely meaningful way that you'll be able to like engineer society. They took it in an insane direction. Uh, right. But I would say that the, you know, the last 70 years have demonstrated the difficulty of large scale social manipulation in the international arena like that. Um, and so I think like that whole way of viewing the world needs to go the way of the dodo um, to use an up to date, cool reference. Um, I yeah, think yeah. That, uh, it's a, it's fundamentally misunderstood and the United States was able to try to implement it during the height of its imperial ascendance after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, but I think it's a fundamental flaw and a progressive era ideology that continues to shape how we interact in the world. Yeah. And, uh, and even, you know, as you say, you know, like there's the sort of libertarian way of taking that insight uh, to, to crazy places. I mean, we, we might not be able to, uh, you know, totally re-engineer, you know, societies, uh, you know, through, through military force, but, you know, we can engineer a healthcare system. We can do that. Uh, but, uh, but they, but like just the point about societies, uh, I mean, it is really striking that, you know, we've had this sort of, um, you know, fall of Saigon-esque collapse in Afghanistan. And if we go back into the Wayback Machine to July, uh, you know, of, of this year, last month, uh, you can find um, several U.S. politicians, you know, the mayor of Miami, a few members of Congress uh, saying that the, uh, the United States uh, should have intervened in, in Cuba. Uh, after the after, after the protests there, uh, and and that's the you know it's just like really uh, striking like 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 what what is it? I, I would really I mean I know well, probably most people who said things like that were just trying to like pander to like a you know a certain segment of uh, you know the like South Florida Cuban community that's you know totally lost touch with reality. And don't really believe that, but I mean, people who really do believe that that could have happened, that would have went, that would have gone well, right? Like, like I, I just, I, I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd love to know what it's like inside the mind of somebody who thinks that the United States could have invaded Cuba, or I don't know, somehow had some sort of proxy force topple, you know, the uh, the, the Cuban regime, and that that would have been better, and that we had, and and it would have led to you know, peace and stability and an American friendly, you know, bourgeois democracy. And it would have been awesome. Yeah. It's, uh, it's hard to know. I mean, after the example of what happened in Iraq, after now the example of Afghanistan, it's hard to, to fathom. And I, I take a more cynical view about this to some degree, because I don't know how many people are really true believers in this stuff anymore uh, versus, um, you know, they, they view this as still a salient justification for $750 billion military budgets for private military contractors for the, uh, well, I mean, it's, you know, uh, we could talk about the military budget all day, but, uh, you know, that this is, this is still a way to justify, uh, massive investments in, 
the state security apparatus domestically too. I mean, the war on terror mindset is still uh, is still there, and it's just being sort of shifted over to uh, other targets at this point. But but uh, you know, the idea of surveillance and you know the the the, the huge amount of infrastructure and spending that goes into that. Uh, you know, I feel like um, whether or not it actually works, I, I think is only a question that's relevant for a subset of the, the security state at this point. I think for the most part, it's just what can we use to uh, sort of sell this perpetual yeah. state of war? I agree. Now, I think now the last 10 or so years since Obama, I think we live in incredibly cynical times like grotesquely cynical times. I agree with Derek. I think for most people in the foreign policy establishment, it's incredibly, they, they act according to incredibly cynical principles. Um, I'm just talking about a broader s social idea, which I think a lot of people still uh, abide by, or at least want to believe in. Yeah. So this, this maybe brings us to uh, a question that uh, Ralph J.A. asked in a super chat. Uh, thank you for that. Says, how do great powers, nation states, and geopolitics relate to class war? Does capitalism uh, cause imperialism? Any book wrecks? So, because there is a, like, there is a question here. I mean, you and I have talked about this a little bit before, Danny, about um, some of the order of explanation here right like, like like to to what extent do you think that the the american imperial project uh can be uh adequately explained in like robustly materialist terms and and to what extent do you think it's like a product of some sort of like uniquely american you know just sort of weird cultural madness um well i think that in actual history the maelstrom of causes is almost impossible to disentangle, especially when we're talking about enormous phenomena embodied in institutions, cultures, ideas, material relations, social relations like capitalism and imperialism. So I think in actual history, they go together and reinforce each other at different sites and locations, and you'd actually have to look at how they operate. And we don't have the great articulation of how capitalism and U.S. imperialism have interacted since 1945. We're much better on the flows of global capital and global capitalism than we are on how imperialism informs those. So in terms of a causal mechanism, I would say that settler colonialism from its beginnings relied on a regime of abstraction that necessitated expansion west, native genocide, exploitation of African labor uh, in the, uh, the American continent. Uh, and that a major cause of what the United States has done in the world is extractivist in ideology from the, uh, the, the United States' first explosion onto the world stage in, during the War of 1898 and seizure of the Philippines was to a large degree about open creating an open door with Asia, uh, what William Appleman Williams referred to as open door imperialism, as was the United States' dominance since the articulation of the Monroe Doctrine, if in name, not in, always in fact, over the course of the 19th century, the U.S.'s dominance of, of um uh, of the Western Hemisphere writ large. But I would say that there are multiple causes to, as to why the United States acts in the world as it does, particularly since the Cold War institutionalized a particular American vision of security and the institutions were created by a generation of people who were traumatized by Nazism. And though they did want to, you know, make the world safe for global capitalism and to extract resources from the world, there also was a genuine idea about security that was really important and security perceptions.
So I think they go together. I think ideas and perceptions of security and desires for material extraction and the dominance of capitalism both inform why the United States acts in the world as it does. I would not say um, that there's a one-to-one -one relationship, like a vulgar Marxist might put it, between desire for oil and American imperialism, even though desire for oil or for other types of resources, you know, rare earth metals and things like that is an important cause of U.S. imperialism. It is not the only cause. And in order to understand the, the um, workings of such a complex phenomenon, we need to uh, be attuned to its multiple modalities and locations. Derek? Uh, no, that I mean that question is is Daniel's. That's not mine. That's not. Oh, go, 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 uh, no, no, no. He's he, that 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 I think was a very comprehensive answer. So uh, okay, okay. Well, maybe we could. I'll I'll down. rest with with what he said there. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, maybe we could drill down a little bit, like more, like maybe there's a way, and I do want to get back to the the book recommendations part of the question too. But uh, but before that, like maybe there's a way to to make the question more concrete, right? Which is, uh, you know, Danny just said that he thinks, uh, you know, he doesn't want to like overemphasize like desire for oil. Uh, so, um, so let's just think like, you know, the war that we have mostly been talking about Afghanistan, uh, cause that was a lot of, you know, as somebody who was, you know, involved in lefty anti-war kinds of stuff at the time. I remember hearing a lot of stuff about, you know, the pipeline and certainly a couple of years later uh, when, when Iraq, uh, you know, was, was invaded, you know, that was, that was probably the dominant, you know, left narrative uh, that, uh, that, you know, mostly, you know, mostly this, this was about, you know, this was about oil. Uh, so, so for either one of you or both, I mean, what's like, like, like how, um, I mean, I guess just to, just to, Put in a really bald-faced way, right? I mean, like, why why did the United States invade these countries? Well, look, I mean, the the invasion of Iraq, I think, um, was less about extracting oil for the United States than about maintaining uh, or establishing a sort of uh, uh, hegemonic, uh, really kind of system in the Middle East to ensure that the oil would flow. Uh, not necessarily coming here, although, you know, uh, Donald Trump sort of crudely talks about take going into these places and taking the oil, or he talked about that. Um, but I don't think it was necessarily about let's go grab the oil and bring it to the United States. It was about let's go in and kind of put our imprimatur over uh, this region that is important uh, decreasingly so to the United States. I mean, you know, as a percentage of the oil that gets used here, the Middle East is less and less important, but it's still uh, very important to other parts of the world, to China, which we view as a peer competitor, um, you know, to places like India that we view as a potential uh, partner in the Indo-Pacific. And, and, you know, there is a sense that the United States would just like to have uh, control over these things. And I think that comes out partly of uh, the kinds of conversations that happened during World War II, toward the end of World War II, the, the notion of somebody needing to stand up and uh, establish some kind of global system that could ensure that nothing evil like the Nazis came back. And that carried through the Cold War. It's carried through the present day and this kind of desperate need for, for a bad guy that, that 
um, you know, we, we need for our foreign policy narrative. But it is, um, you know, just an idea uh, uh, that it should be our hands on the button, in a sense, or our hands at the at the uh, at the wheel in all of these things that the United States is best positioned, uh, as Madeleine Albright you know, famously said, we're the uh, indispensable nation. Uh, and that's somehow just the way it should be. And that's that's the attitude for a lot of uh, uh, the foreign policy community, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that that's a useful distinction because, uh, I mean, I think you can't, you know, I mean, just on the face of it, you know, you can't leave the oil out of it. I mean, I remember like actually Ari Fleischer, you know, as, as the uh, Bush administration uh, press secretary uh, had... Um, you know, said uh, that, um, like, he was asked a question, you know, it's like, basically, I'll, a lot of your stated justifications for invading Iraq uh, would, would go for, uh, for for North Korea, you know, why, why don't you invade North Korea? And his answer, I wish I remembered it word for word, but this is almost it, was, uh, well, that's a different strategic situation for one thing, or, you know, for one thing, uh, Iraq is almost swimming with oil, uh, which... Uh, you know, which which I you know was definitely a moment of uh, of honesty, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think you can understand that without going straight to like it was like the Trump plan. We're going to take the oil uh, rather than like this is uh, trying to maintain you know favorable you know conditions maybe for American business and the world overall. You know, wanted to to sort of see a steady imperial hand on on the overall flow of oil. Uh, so uh, we are we are reaching the the end of it, but uh, do either of you want to take a crack at the book recommendation part of the question? Uh, Danny, this is probably uh, book recommendation for history of imperial. I mean, just I think just read the history. Sometimes you read too much theory on the left. Read Paul Chamberlain's uh, "The Cold War's Killing Fields," uh, rethinking the long peace. Read. Uh, John Lewis Gaddis's Strategies of Containment, read William Appleman Williams's A Tragedy of American Diplomacy, read Lindsay O'Rourke's Covert Regime Change, uh, Joan Hoff, Hoff's H-O-F-F's A Faustian Foreign Policy is a good book. Um, and then also there's a new collection of Marilyn B. Young's essays coming out soon. And she was a great lefty scholar from NYU. So read all those and then and then get back to me. Then we could talk about okay. theory. If anybody wants any book recommendations on Islamic history, I'm I'm the guy for that. <laughs> Danny Danny handles the foreign policy book recommendations. Fair enough. Well, uh, we should do a uh, we should do an episode just about that. But uh, for uh, for now, uh, let's uh, let's let's leave it right there. Uh, thank you so much, guys. Everybody should check out and uh, listen to uh, American uh, Prestige. Uh, new episodes uh, coming out uh, every uh, every Friday. So thank you both. Thank you. Thanks. Oh, Thanks. And, and, and read Derek and Danny's article in the uh, in the New Republic. Uh, the uh, Afghanistan war was founded on lies. Some people are still uh, are still telling them. Almost forgot that. So read them in the New Republic. Listen to American Prestige. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Ben. All right, uh, that was uh, Daniel Bessner and Derek Davison, uh, co-hosts of uh, the uh, new American uh, Prestige uh, podcast, uh, which everybody should check out. 
Uh, meanwhile, uh, if you are a patron of this podcast, give them an argument, uh, which, and if you're not, you can go to patreon.com slash Ben Burgess. But if you are, uh, we are about to go to the post game uh, for patrons, just as a reminder, uh, if you become a patron, you get this post game every Monday night after the main show. You also get a bonus episode, uh, that, uh, drops every Thursday, uh, you also get access to the Discord server. Uh, we've done you know, Discord movie nights, uh, group voice chats, lots of good stuff there. Uh, and most importantly, you know, solidarity. It's uh, you know helps us uh, helps us do what we do here. So uh, if you like the work, if you want to support it, please do consider becoming a patron. Uh, but uh, meanwhile, uh, we are uh, going to go to uh, to the to the post game. Uh, it's probably going to be a little bit of a shorter post game tonight, uh, but uh, we are going to um, uh, you know we're actually going to talk uh, you know about something uh, somebody asked last night uh, about uh, Polanyi and uh, and and embeddedness, and uh, and we're going to do you know if you've ever watched the episode of The Simpsons. Uh, where Bart becomes briefly famous for saying "I didn't do it," and uh, and he has uh, he's he's he goes on various shows and stuff to 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 say the line, uh, say "I didn't do it." Uh, so uh, just like Bart can say that line, uh, Kale can talk about uh, neo-Marxist state theory. Uh, so I'm uh, gonna ask Maybe. him to do that for a few minutes of the post game. Here, I'll I'll make it even more enticing. Offer we can do like Marxist theories of imperialism and why like. Most of them are flawed, and we need a new, better one. To, to Danny's point, like they're, they're actually you can theorize this stuff, but like there's not a lot of good theory. So maybe I don't know. Maybe maybe we'll do none of it. Maybe we'll just watch The Simpsons with headphones on, and you won't get to hear it because it'll be copyrighted. Yeah. But something it'll yeah, be one you, of those you, three. You can watch our we, you can watch our faces while we're laughing at the Simpsons episodes. Yeah. That, uh, just, we're you time it at home. <laughs> <laughs> Say so that that's something everybody could enjoy. All right. Uh, probably it's going to be some combination of the first two things, not the third one, but we will see. So uh, for people who are patrons, I'll see you in the post game for everybody else. I will see you next week. Left is best. Left is best. <laughs>